Hey folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and you're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. And this week, I'm going to be chatting to a chap called Gordo Byrne, whose musings and blog posts I've been reading since the late 1990s. Before that, I'd like to tell you about my podcast, my website, and my regular newsletters, all of which focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by me interpreting the science and then translating it into easy-to-understand lessons for you. If you enjoy the podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performances to the next level. And at the end of the episode, I'll explain about these benefits in more detail and let you know how you can join our growing track. Right, back to this week's guest. Gordo Byrne went from what he called himself as an average age grouper in 1999, they finished Ironman Canada, his first event, in just over 11 hours. But a few years later, he was right at the very top. As a pro triathlete, finishing second at Ironman Canada and also second in Ironman New Zealand behind the legendary Cameron Brown. He also won the widely known Ultraman events, a three-day ultra-distance triathlon on the big island of Hawaii. And he also won the Otilo swim run event in Sweden which was the the founder event of all those swim run events that you uh, have probably heard of now. After that Gordo took 10 years out of sport to raise his children but now he's back and he's finding out what he can achieve as a 54 year old athlete. He has a project called 1000 day pacing so that's just over three years where he speaks about the benefits of long-term planning something I've spoken about at length in the past rather than the current trend of trying to achieve huge goals in a few short months and dealing with the pressure that this brings. As usual, we get into a whole range of topics and Gordo specifically shares his wisdom on how age group triathletes can best prepare for long distance events and the adjustments he's had to make as an older athlete getting back into the sport. So, my advice is to put everything away, buckle up, because you're really going to enjoy this podcast. Well, welcome to the show, Gordo Burnett. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, we've we've got some um, mutual friends, Admiral Scott Jones and Alan Cousins. Both have been um, guests on the show. Also, a friend of mine who's a little uh, a little older than both of us, Simon Butterworth, a resident of uh, Boulder. I think you know Simon quite well. I do. I do. Simon is. Uh... He's sort of one of my super vet heroes. He's done quite a yeah. bit over the years. Well, he, he might be elevated to superhero status soon once he gets running after those knee replacements. <laughs> Gordo, listen, I've, I've been following you for what seems like a, an awful long time. Uh, you first came onto my radar. Probably you, you'll have to correct me on the timing, but I would say it was the late 90s when you started writing for um x-try an online production yeah. called x-try is that right yeah that was uh, one of the early early days of uh the internet and uh and uh, i had a there was rob was the editor of x-try and he he just he saw my stuff online and i was i was probably just writing on um rexport triathlon and which was a bulletin board. And, and he said, Hey, uh, I like your stuff. Do you want to write for my site? And I was like, sure. I'd love to write for your site. And he got me going. And, uh, and it was, I was enjoying triathlon. I was just a amateur starting up 
And really, it gave me a way to document my journey from my like knowing nothing uh, right up to the top of the sport uh, mm-hmm. on his site. And it was a lot of fun. And then eventually, sort of, he gave me a column. And then when I when I moved to New Zealand from Hong Kong, he even hosted me at his house for a week and took care of me and kind of showed me around and helped me buy mm-hmm. a car. He was like, he was a great editor. And uh, yeah, I loved. I loved the I loved the style you had. Um, I was I bought um, a series of blogs that you put together with Endurance Corner um, about uh, about probably half a dozen different topics. It was probably about ten dollars that you had it for on the Endurance Corner site, and I've been trying to find it in a, in the lead up to this, but it must be stored on a hard on a mobile hard drive or something. So I haven't been there, but I, I used to like your writing style. It was quite st- staccato, you know, bullet points and just brief. Um, brief thoughts rather than whole paragraphs is that is that right yeah so when i when i started i used to write really long form so i'd write these long long race reports to myself and then i'd publish them and they were really helpful helping me think through the race and i'd mm-hmm. cover the build up and all the training but as the web developed and has as online uh, uh, writing developed. What I found is that the ideal length for an article is probably about three minutes long, and and probably three ideas within the three minutes. And if you're going longer than that, it the, it needs to be really good because most people are you know they're looking for a break from their day and and when they're reading your stuff. And so it helps to keep it very direct and pretty short. Now, that's a different medium than if you're writing a book. If you're writing a book, I think people are willing to sit down and spend more time with it. So I sort of fell into this style with my online articles, and even the articles when I was writing for magazines like Triathlete and that Inside Tri. Um, it needed to be shorter, and it needed to be really focused. And and it seems to work. Uh, it, yeah. People you know, I, I can get an idea across and connect with somebody. And at the same time, they're not having to invest too much of their day uh, dealing with me, which makes them willing to come back to my stuff again and again. Now, the opportunity for deeper dives is when you sit down and you write a book or this medium. Uh, podcasting, I think, is great because it lets people really dig down on a subject that they want to learn more about. And I often find that when you're just riffing with somebody and having a conversation, sometimes new ideas just spontaneously come out and you're like, oh, that's kind of good. I might grab that. And so it's a it's a nice way to brainstorm even and and I guess realize what you know uh, through conversation with somebody. And with that, uh, some of my best teachers would often have a student take notes in their lectures for the teacher. And so the teacher would have the ability because when they're just talking and stuff, somebody needs to capture if if there's a good idea and get that mm-hmm. uh, for the teacher, particularly teachers that write, and then they can explore those ideas uh, further. And I think a lot of us do that with um, with Twitter and other social media. We just kind of chuck different ideas out there, and then we see what connects with people and resonates, and then we can go a little bit deeper. So my writing workflow is actually sort of like a tweet, a thread, a short article, and then a chapter. And and each one is mm-hmm. becoming a little bit longer and a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I think back to those X-Chai 
posts. They were like a lot of tweets put together, weren't they? Really, there might be ten bullet points in there. But I, I used to love them, and you talked about how it was a, enabled you to document this journey you had from being this amateur triathlete that was just taking part for fun and a bit of fitness to somebody who went right to the top of the game and reading. I I, I did used to seek those blog posts out and read them. And I, as a coach myself, I was fascinated by this journey and this curiosity you had and these learnings that took you all the way around the world to, to um, and you, you mentioned about podcasts giving you the opportunity to dive in a bit deeper. And that's exactly what I'd like to do this afternoon if, uh, if you're okay with that. Oh yeah. So let's, let's go back right to the beginning. So, I've never been sure exactly what you did. Um, yeah, I've listened to a couple of podcasts. I guess you were in the corporate world. You were in finance. You were in Hong Kong for a bit. You did a bit of mountain climbing. I know you came to London. You did a bit of cycling. You probably were enjoying the corporate life and perhaps not uh, not in the best fitness. And then you decided to get a bit fitter. And that's that's when the snowball started rolling. But I guess that was a bit of an uphill push for a while. It was. So I, so let's, so my, my undergraduate degree was in finance and economics. And I had the opportunity to come to London for a summer internship to work in a firm that does something called private equity. And mm. what they, what they would do is purchase in Europe, what they did primarily in the group I was with was purchase companies that for whatever reason, the owners didn't want to own the company anymore. They needed they either needed to realize their investment in the company or they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And so they were going to sell it off. And this was early days in the industry. So this is around 2000. And the industry as an industry only really started in the 1980s. And my summer internship, they offered for me to stay on. And ultimately, I stayed with the firm for 10 years in Europe and then out in Asia. And it was so my life in London was sort of a typical London life of somebody. So I was I was just working and in the pub and hanging out with my friends. And I and I got really out of shape and I got sick of that. And so I just started, you know, going walking. And literally we would be walking to the pub in the countryside and and <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Just really easy. But then walking turned to hiking and tramping. And then ultimately that led to mountaineering. And by this time I was out in Asia and I'd been promoted and I figured, well, it might, it might help my career if I, if I look a little bit better and if I'm a little bit healthier. And then I got into it and it just sort of snowballed. And I, I, I did some hiking in the Hong Kong has these local mountains and a trail system and I did hiking in Indonesia and Malaysia. And eventually the biggest thing I did was I headed out to Kilimanjaro and climbed in Africa, but that was just hiking. And then, and then I went into mountaineering for a bit. Mountaineering culminated with a, a climb in Alaska called Denali. And I noticed that I was really strong on the long days. And I had this innate endurance as well as an enjoyment of the training. And I decided to sign up for an Ironman because I the I had a feeling the mountaineering wasn't going to end well for me if I kept escalating uh, the mountains mm. I was going to climb. And I loved it. And and my first Ironman, I was just hoping to finish, and knew nothing about the sport, but I knew I could. I knew from the mountaineering that I could I could go all day. So if it was going to take me 17 hours, I I, I knew that I could go for 17 hours. 
And re and by the time I, I gave myself a year to get ready for that. And by the time I, I'd come to the race, I figured I might have a chance at finishing with the sun still up. And I managed to do that and, and enjoyed it, enjoyed the training, enjoyed the race, had, had a good time and, and just decided to go deeper into triathlon training. And just for context back then, I was probably training about in my second season, I was probably training about 18 hours a week. And that that's a lot uh, for an amateur to be training. Um, but I, I tolerated it really well. And, and, and it worked. So I was getting a really good bang for my buck, a really good response. But in training in, uh, in training, what, what, what do you got? Now I was going to ask you what 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 was your first what was your um, the year of your first Ironman? So the first Ironman was 1999 okay. in Canada. Oh, my favorite race, Penticton. I loved it. It was it was so so great. One loop swim, one loop bike, one loop run, and when you hit the turnaround, you just run back to town. So it was. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, and it was a dry climate coming from Asia dealing with heat and humidity and going to a dry climate i found that my stamina was phenomenal because it was i was used to a much more stressful environment but living in hong kong at the time and trying to train through a hong kong summer was really demanding and so in my second season i took 2 months off from work and i came to colorado to train again for ironman canada and that that one went that race went really well. I was second amateur, and I um and I realized wow this is just this is just great. And so to put it in perspective, I was like about eleven hours on that first year, and then in my second year, I was about nine, probably about nine twenty something. Yeah. So I, I I it was a big drop, and when you drop that much, the race in a sense actually gets easier because your, your race duration is an hour and a half shorter. So there's a lot less race to fuel and it's, it's quicker. Yeah. Can it, that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron um, that when you go faster, the race uh, is a bit easier. And I know a lot of people be scratching their heads and thinking, well, how could that be? Because you'll be pushing harder. Yeah. Still burning through the same amount of calories. Can you explain that a little bit more for people who are just just quizzical about what you really mean there? Yeah. So, well, you're you're not pushing. So there's a there's um. So in that from 13 hours to 11 hours, you're actually not going that fast, in a sense. The 13 to 11, and that two hours, the difference between an 11 hour workout and a 13 hour workout is a big big difference especially for some for an athlete at those speeds. So if you can if you can just get yourself to keep moving and particularly keep moving on the run, you can really shorten the event. And with the bike, until your airspeed is is well up, your the bikes are a very efficient way to get around uh the 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 course in terms of, you know, bang for your buck. And and I just and it's it's something people don't expect, but that's why and and the run and the swim itself, the difference between swimming easy and swimming all out is only a few minutes for people, and a lot of folks don't realize how much energy they give away in the swim, 
um, you can you can burn a lot of matches in the water. It doesn't get you much speed. So as a coach, I, we used to do paced open water workouts where we do loops just so an athlete can prove that to themselves, that, that going easy on the swim, particularly in an Ironman, doesn't cost them much at all. And with the courses being so crowded as well, actually the, the further back you come in the swim, even if you're riding legit, you still got all these people to move through, all these people around you. There's a benefit uh, as you move around the course to coming out of the water deep. You'll see in most of the amateur races, a lot of the fastest bike splits are done by athletes who come out relatively deep and they're passing people all day long on the bike and getting these little bits of benefit all the way around the course. And I'm not talking about the courses where it bunches up and you see these pictures of people riding around a group of 30 or 40 riders. I'm talking about just riding riding your own race, but doing it through the field. It can be a very efficient way. So as as the as as you get quicker and quicker, this this observation only applies to a point. And the point is around nine and a half hours, I found. Beyond nine and a half hours, then your air speeds up and the velocity that you need to do on the run and the bike to get yourself under nine hours does require a tremendous amount of fitness. And then from that point on, every 10 minute block going you know, going down and going faster actually is a whole nother level of fitness. So like there's, there's sort of like a nine hour level, 850, 840. And then the fastest I got was 829. And and that was really challenging for me. I was getting towards the limits of what I could deliver as an athlete, um, just physically. But, but those, but those slower times, if you can do the training uh, I think, and by slower, they're, I mean, they're not slow, but, but, but they're, they're not, they're slow compared to the very best elites. You know, now we're seeing athletes going 745 routinely. I mean, that, that's just a phenomenal performance. But if we back that off by say an hour and a half, it's a, it's a much more realistic sort of high level amateur performance in that mid nine hour, uh, type range, I think, given, given what we know about human physiology and training. I, I think what you talked about there with the swim is really interesting. And I, you know, again, as a coach, I have the same conversations probably that you do with people. It's like, instead of trying to be a faster swimmer, just be more efficient. Get through yeah. the swim as, uh, you know, as effortlessly as possible and then max out on your bike training because you can make a lot of time there. And if you can get off the bike, having posted a decent time, I'm still feeling really strong. Then you don't actually need to be such a, a, a super fast runner. You just need to be able to keep going. and and use your energy there because you know you are no doubt a student from from what you've said there of, of performances where you see people losing it's the back half of the run isn't it and that, and that's when you realize how many matches you burnt early on and it's not necessarily about being a faster runner across the marathon it's been making sure that you don't slow down much because uh, everybody can, everybody can run a sub 330 marathon in the first 21k but that's when it all falls apart in the back 21k. I mean, maybe not everybody, but you know what I'm talking about there. Everybody's a everybody's a demon for the first half of the run. Well, and that's that's and that's something that I also work with with people is is first off, the starting point for any triathlon distance 
is slowing your swim and your bike down to the point where you're able to deliver your run performance that you do in training on race day. That's mm -hmm. the starting point. And I think many people are in a hurry to make the race difficult for themselves and they never give themselves an opportunity to understand what the swim and the bike is gonna feel like in a well-paced race. So in a well-paced race, you, you, your, your swims and, and bike's gonna feel pretty comfortable relative to your capacity. And, and I think nobody, a, a lot of athletes have never actually felt that. And so they're expecting it to feel mm -hmm. difficult early in the day. And if you're pacing correctly, it doesn't. The way it does is it feels like a training day until the last 90 minutes of the run. And then it feels really, really hard. Mm. And you need, and, and to give yourself the mental reserves to get through those difficulties in the second half of the marathon, it really helps if you're passing people and moving up through the field. Mm. And, you know, yeah. starting as an amateur, a mid-pack amateur, I, I experienced that. I was a, I started swimming when I was 30, so I was I was not a great swimmer. And then I would compound that by swimming way too hard and having to regroup mm -hmm. on the bike. And then by the time the run rolled around, because of my mountaineering background, I could just kind of chug along and I was passing hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, nobody's even running here. And and my first marathon was uh, four hours. And I, I I passed several hundred people running mm -hmm. a four hour marathon. And I was like, Hey, I'm onto something here. And then I, I just over, I slowly worked those marathon times down, eventually getting to a 246 off the bike and a whole lot of runs that were in the kind of 250 or sub 250 range. And back then, if you had the ability to run like mm -hmm. that, you could be very competitive <laughs> in these elite races. And it was a lot of it was also enjoyable because you're moving up the field too. So I think that's something that I would say to people is give, figure out what it's going to take for you to run well first and then kind of work backwards. And uh, rather than inverting your pacing, which is sort of like fast and then on the bike, I'm kind of going steady and then it's just survival on the run, change it and say, you know what, this time I'm going to go easy on the swim and do the bike comfortable. I'm not going to be spiking my power a lot. And I'm going to try and run really well this time and see where that gets me relative to what I've been doing before. And I've seen just that shift in approach take an hour out of somebody's Ironman time because they don't fall apart in the middle of the run. Yeah, I was smiling there, Gordo, because over the years, I think I've put people into two camps. There's the people who say, I had a great bike. I fell apart on the run. And then there's the other group of people who say, I had a great run. I could have gone harder on the bike. And that's the, that's the group you're talking about. And those are the ones that need to learn how to have that conversation is, I felt great on the, uh, on the run. I felt it was a little too easy on the bike. And the reason the run was great is because you went a little too easy on the bike, except it wasn't a little too easy. You're just spreading your energy out properly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that works well. Okay. So there you are. You've gone second age grouper at... Uh, I am at Canada, which would no doubt have got you a space uh, slot for Kona. Um, yeah, and I went so to Kona that went, year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And at what point then did you think, oh, I might be ready to take it to the next level here and give it a try as a pro? Well, it was easy. It was, I mean, again, back then it was easier. All you had to do was say you wanted to race pro. And mm -hmm. it was also easier to get into the races. So if you could convince the race director that you were 
fast enough to be mm-hmm. in the elite field, they'd let you in. So that was so there was a big incentive there because then you didn't have to sign up a year in advance. So I I I start so in my third season I started racing elite and I was just getting crushed. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't competitive at all. Um but it was but I figured it was the right thing to do because I was I was training, I was ramping up my training and trying to train uh like an elite. And what I I took a year off work and spent a month in Australia and then headed over to New Zealand for the rest of the winter and then raced uh, Ironman New Zealand and had a had a good result sort of sort of low nines um and I was I was in I was in the same sort of spot as I did in Canada I was a little bit quicker but I was you know I was still sort of mixed in with the slow pros and the fast amateurs in terms mm-hmm. of where I was finishing but I was I was really enjoying it and I was having having fun. Same kind of thing. I raced Canada that year and it was a similar kind of performance, maybe maybe a little bit quicker. But I, mm-hmm. I loved the process, and so I decided not to go back uh, to my desk job in Hong Kong and to give it a give it a shot for a few years and see just how fast I could get. And I was working with Scott Molina, uh, who was who lived close to me down in Christchurch, New Zealand, and Scott was my coach for pretty much he was with me my whole um elite career so he was the the constant in terms of advising me and even when i had other coaches i was always in touch with scott to let him know what i was up to because he had i I really respected his experience and he had a good idea about me as a person and as an athlete Mm. and so one of the I was carry on and I'll I'll jump back in in a minute. Well, and and then so one of the one of the questions you know in the outline that you you laid out was you know how I worked with a lot of different coaches and what was the mm. thinking there, and my thinking was really no stir no stone left unturned, mm-hmm. and the so my first my first coach was a guy called Troy Jacobson, and then after that I worked with Joe Friel as an amateur, and then Scott when I was an elite and, and it gave me exposure to a lot of different approaches. And then as an elite, I also worked with Dave Scott. I worked with Mark Allen. I won when I I had the opportunity to train with Chucky V who had won Ironman Canada. I spent a whole summer training with him. And the idea was to learn from all these different athletes and coaches, different approaches, and to see, you know, just, just to expand my knowledge. And it's something I've done in different fields. And it helps. I felt that it helped uh, accelerate my learning. But then it also gave me, it also made it clear to me that actually there are no secret workouts or special techniques. Uh, you know, working with Mark Allen, working with Dave Scott, working with Scott Molina, there's a lot of race victories. Uh, spread across those three athletes and Mm -hmm. the training protocols while different on the surface if i look at the physiology of what they were addressing it's identical so they might have slightly different approaches Mm -hmm. for how to train and maybe the sets are a little bit different but it's the same thing There, there there's when when we hear these elite coaches and elite athletes say there are no secrets I really proved that to myself 
-hmm. the best, the best athletes, the best coaches in the sport. I was able to get them to work with me directly one-on-one, ask them questions, use their protocol in my own training. It's very similar. What I think is different is really the approach now is a much greater focus. And this is something I'm bringing into my training now is a much better focus on adaptation rather than work. So back then, you know, when I'm, if you, if you think about me as a relatively young athlete to the sport, even though say I'm in my early thirties, I had the ability to throw a ton of volume at myself. So those amateur weeks of 18 hours a week went up to 25 to 35 hours a week as an elite. And I tolerated that. So I had the ability to tolerate a lot of training. And because I had this ability to do a ton of work, I did it. But I wasn't focused on trying to do, um, trying to absorb the work. I was totally focused on doing the work. Mm. And one of the shifts from being, say, 30, 33 to 54 is you don't have that luxury anymore. Or for mm-hmm. a working athlete listening to this, the, the total amount of stress in your life from your job and your family, you don't have the ability to do these massive weeks that you hear the elites do. And so you need to be much more focused on are you getting a return for the fatigue you're giving yourself? Are you getting an adaptation? And so that's a change is being willing to back off and being focused much more on progressing myself as an athlete and progressing within each of the three sports. I'm just thinking about what you said there, that, that the approach of most of the elite coaches is very similar, slight differences. Um, I often wonder how much store, whether whether athletes, amateur athletes, age groupers over-focus on the necessity to um, be so precise about what's in the set. So, you know, should I do four by eight minutes at threshold or should I do eight by four minutes? Um, getting the work done, but then providing the environment for that adaptation to take place. So focusing on things like sleep, on nutrition, on stress management, on just creating the right environment to to, to bring harmony um, are often overlooked. And yet you could you can get by with a lot less work and general work. And I, this is one of Stephen Silas' foundation theories is just do the volume and frequency with a sprinkling of high intensity and just get the work done and be consistent, but eat well, sleep well, live well. And actually you'll probably do better than if you over-focus on the, the nuts and bolts of your, your sessions. Well, and that was... That's really Kiwi culture that you're describing there. Uh, I was really lucky to be down in New Zealand in the South Island with uh, John Hellemans and Scott mm-hmm. Molina, two coaches who've helped thousands of athletes, and they never got caught up in the fine detail. I mean, it was they they we used to run things off a of subjective perception. They found mm-hmm. me entertaining because I would I was all into the data. I was one of the first athletes mm-hmm. to have an SRM. And I was always tracking pace and heart rate and heart rate to pace and heart rate to watts and stuff. And they were always encouraging me, hey, just get out there and do the work. And so they were they were a good influence on me. And even when we're having the conversation, for the example you cited, we just naturally gravitate to those threshold sessions or those or the red zone training. But it's not about that. It's about the foundational training. It's about the, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's about what you're doing for 90% of your minutes. 
It's not about the structure of the other 10% of your minutes. And I mm -hmm. think the um, athletes and the media and um, I mean, writers, even myself, people are really interested in the structuring of that 10%, but mm -hmm. it's the 90% of your time that is generating the capacity to do harder training, more intense training. And it's also, that's what's generating the fitness that everything stands on top of. Mm -hmm. And the Kiwis were great with that. Just those foundational uh, workouts. Uh, if you had, if you were a young athlete or a young, young elite, you came into John and said, hey, you know, Hey John, I want to see what I can do. He would, he'd give you a medical. He's a, he's a sports doc. And then he would give you a piece of paper and on the piece of paper was all your training for a week. And he mm -hmm. would say, do this for four weeks mm -hmm. and then we'll talk again. And, and so that was sort of, he'd just give you a piece of paper and that's it. And that approach worked for everybody from Olympians on down to somebody just coming in off the street is just get them going. And I call it the basic week approach. You find a basic week that fits your life and you just repeat that week. And while you're repeating the week, you learn about your sport, whether it's triathlon, cycling, running, whatever. You just, you've got a week that works for you and you learn by doing. And I think that's the best way to approach it. I think quite often new athletes uh, or athletes that are really intellectual, I'd include myself in that, we overthink it. Mm -hmm. And we we want to have everything sort of figured out when what's important is just getting the work done. And I, I I recommend to athletes, I say, look, prove that you can do it before you worry about what you're doing. So just get these sessions in your week, get your life set up so that you can do, you can fit these sessions in, do them ideally for about 15 weeks. And then you can start tweaking within the week what you're doing. But that you'll be tweaking from a position of actually doing something mm. most every day and moving yourself forward. Because you're going to be, if you want to get good, you're going to be at this for years and years. And uh, you got to give yourself a chance for that. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've seen much or read much of Stephen Siler, but he has this endurance pyramid at the bottom. It's just frequency and, and um, frequency and volume. Just use all the time that you've got available, whether that's six hours a week or 10 hours a week, and just, just get the sessions done. And be as consistent. Back to your point, be as consistent as possible. If you want to add a little bit of high intensity work, add some sprinkling of intervals, but just do it by sprinting up a hill or doing some far electrolyte post. And then you can add something more structured. And those bottom three of the pyramid will get you ninety percent of the way. So very similar concept to what you've just described, just laid out in a pyramid format. And um, you know, again, it's it seems too simple for most people. So like you say, they want to overthink it and make it more complicated. I would go even simpler for folks. I would say if you're new, what I would recommend you do is base training all the time, strength and endurance focus. Don't do any red zone training. Go out and do a short race. You'll actually you'll you'll learn you'll learn more by racing than you will by smashing yourself with these short, highly intense sessions. And it's and that's and and then as well, you're going to freshen up a little bit before and after the race. So you're going to have some cycle in your load. Um, and it's a really safe protocol because the race stimulus is a very powerful stimulus, but your the velocity and the stress is going to be lower than what you can do to yourself with some of these red zone sessions that you see on the internet. 
And I think that's a protocol that works really well. It's what I did every winter as an elite. I would go down to New Zealand. I would stay put in Christchurch. And I would do Ironman base training combined with sea priority short distance races, mm -hmm. uh, running races, aquathons, sprint triathlons. And it worked great for me. I would come out of that winter and then head back to the northern season just in phenomenal shape. I, I will, I've, I've done a little bit of threshold stuff. I was strong and I was fit. And it would really set up my entire uh, year. And, and I think that approach works really well uh, mm -hmm. for people. Uh, you don't, because it's, it's, easy, it's easy to go fast in a race. Um, it's a pretty big dose, even with a short race, even with something like a 5K. Uh, and it's uh, it's a safe way to give yourself a, a bunch of intensity. I'll share a little story about John Hellerman's with you. I've, I've never met John. I've heard a lot about him. And I don't know if you've ever met uh, a coach in the UK. He was the first director of um, triathlon for British Triathlon. He was the uh, he was the men's team manager at the Sydney Olympics called Chris Jones. But I know he, he floats in those circles and he was telling me how they were sat at a world championships, there was John Hellemans there, there was a couple of other coaches, and they were discussing this whole point about if you have a 10-week program and it's 10 hours a week, you know, would athletes succeed? And John, he said, John Hellemans was like, you just give somebody the program. A lot of people come back and give you excuses why they couldn't do this session, they couldn't do that session. I guarantee if somebody does those X number of sessions a week for 10 weeks, they will improve. Without, with or without any intensity. And it's almost the same story you've told from a different perspective by some elite coaches over a few glasses of wine and beer. Well, so John's, John's what he would point his amateurs at, his, his serious amateurs, he would say three, three, three. Three swims, three bikes, three runs every mm -hmm. single week. And if you're, and if you want to, if you want to go, if you want to go further with your sport, it's going to be four, four, four. And that's the foundation, a simple foundation of frequency. And then you, you figure out what you can do and you just focus on getting that done. Because I think a lot of folks, if they overdo it in one workout or in one sport, the first thing that's going to happen is they'll see their frequency drop off. So all of a sudden it might be a, a three, two, one or, or mm -hmm. something. And, and so he would focus the athletes on three, 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 and you got to just get that going. And from that foundation, if you you figure out whatever it is you can handle to get your three three three, you then start building off that foundation, and that's something that worked really well. Now, when I was mm -hmm. trying to be an elite, I was more like five five five, but I was I was taking that principle and applying it as well, and staying balanced uh, with my training. So keeping the frequency in for the runs, keeping the frequency in for the swims. I think a lot of athletes will have gaps in certain sports across the year. And mm -hmm. I think that sells you short because you're having to restart. And I also think that the sports work together with our physiology. So having taken a break, I took a break for 10 years when my kids were born from uh, swim, bike, run. And I've brought it back over the last year. I'm noticing that the swim, the bike, and the run really work together uh, in terms of my metabolic fitness. And it takes me to a higher level uh, with this whole body uh, fitness. And I think uh, I think if you give yourself a chance to experience that, you'll, ex you'll, 
you'll hopefully you'll you'll agree with me and you'll say, well, hey, John Hallamans and Gordo, they might have been onto something there. Um, kind of, I call it like the Lollapalooza effect when you bring all this aerobic training. And the nice thing about triathlon is, you know, your bike and your swim are non-impact training. So mm-hmm. the volume that you can tolerate as a triathlete is far more than the volume you'd be able to tolerate as a runner, particularly mm-hmm. when you're a developing athlete. Yeah. Going back to volume. So, you know, um, you said that you were able to tolerate high volumes of, uh, of training, even in your second season. And then you went to work with Scott Molina and Scott was always, um, Scott was always known as a big volume man, wasn't he? Back in those days. So did you go to Scott because he just happened to be where you were in New Zealand or did you seek him out because you knew he was high volume and you thought that might be what worked for you or was it just a pure coincidence? Well, so in when I lived in Hong Kong, the Tri-Federation used to bring in Kiwi athletes, Kiwi elites, to train with the elite Hong Kong athletes. And two, two athletes came in. Uh, one was called Steve Sheldrake. The other was called John Newsom, And John runs a podcast with Bevan called I Am Talk. So yeah. I, d- I did a deal with Johnny where he could live with me in Hong Kong if he did all my training with me at my speed, which was <laughs> slower than Johnny's speed. But it was a good deal for him because he had a free place to live when he was in Hong Kong. And it was a great deal for me because I effectively had a live-in elite training buddy. And I was peppering him with questions the whole time and learning everything I could from him. So John grew up in Christchurch and, you know, we, we were friends and he's like, Hey, you should come to Christchurch. There's this whole scene down there that you're going to be totally into. Cause I was a nut. I was a triathlon nut. And there was, there was like, I didn't even know how many people that there was like six world champions living in Christchurch An indoor 50 meter pool was being built at the time. The training was fabulous. The port Hills, the riding. The weather's pretty brutal, but he didn't mention that until I got there and experienced it for myself. <laughs> but so I was like, okay, so I'm going to turn up. Now, I didn't know this, but when I rolled into town, Melina was trying to get back into shape. And so the fact that I was sort of like a fast amateur and he was Scott Molina, world Ironman champion, we were actually able to train together at a similar speed. And he got a kick out of me because I was such a nut um, about try and stuff. And and so we just kind of hit it off. And so I would just turn up. He lived 5K away from me. I'd just turn up at his garage and we'd go ride. He was trying to get back into shape. I was trying to become an elite. It just worked out. We were a really good fit. And then ultimately we started working together and we we, we did some businesses together in terms of these training camps and trying to bring mm-hmm. Scott's philosophy to a wider audience, a uh, fast amateur audience, and giving them a chance to do the training that Scott had done and the Scott, the training that Scott had taught to athletes like Cameron Brown and myself, and really pass that off out into the out into the larger world, uh, the philosophy. So yeah, it was a volume-based philosophy. Um, and an athlete with my profile who tolerated volume, we were we were a good fit. Now, what we could have done better is what is how the elites train now. And the elites still do high volume. All the good elites are doing a ton of work, but they monitor themselves and they try and make sure that they're getting a bang for their buck with the volume. They're getting an adaptation from that volume. We didn't care about that. So we were focused on what I call load maxing, giving our 
bodies the maximum load that we could tolerate, not necessarily the optimal load. Uh, we're, we're really focused on just huge days and lots of them. And that worked, but it, it worked. It only worked to a point. Um, we had, you know, I had a lot of periods where I would get overreached and, and tired. And I think part of the reason that we see athletes performing so much better these days is they've had the maturity to step back from this load max approach and say, Hey, we're going to do a lot of training but we need to make sure that the training is progressing our bodies and we're not racing tired. And we don't have these long periods each year where we've gone stale. And this is a, a philosophy that amateurs can apply to, to themselves because you know I'm coming back and in the back of my mind, I've got this volume, volume, volume thing because it's the way I've always done it, but I'm applying this new approach. It's working great. But it doesn't come easy because of the, the compulsion and the experience that I have with volume working so well. I, I my, my easier days are, are difficult for me mentally, but I can't, I can't deny the fact that this approach is working really, really well for me. <laughs> I, I'm seeing, you know, I feel good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not impatient with my kids. I'm still easy for my family to deal with. And I'm progressing all three sports. So it's, um, there's really something there. And there's something there at all volume levels. Mm. Every, every, from, we're talking eight hours up to what we hear the top athletes doing. So, you know, the 30 plus hours, the whole thing, you need to be looking at the adaptation that you're getting uh, for, for your training. And, and it's never been easier to do that. I mean, you know, we've got all these different gizmos. But, you know, the simplest tests are still the best, you know, just looking at what your speed is versus your heart rate. And mm. is that progressing? Is that progressing every six weeks or so? Yes or no. And if it's not progressing, well, what's going on? You know, what, you know, what's happening? I, I'd like to come back to your approach for over 50s men, because I know that you're approaching that age soon, Gorda. Um, but let's go back. You talked about those training camps you did with Scott Molina. Now, these were something else I used to enjoy reading about from your X-Tribe blogs, the epic training camps. I know you used to have some in Europe. Um, and there was a friend of mine called Stephen Lord used to come along to some. <laughs> Do you remember Stephen? Awesome. Um, lordy, lordy. He's, Stephen yeah, lordy, was, lordy. Stephen is amazing. He's, he was an amazing athlete. And I was really glad I got to see and train alongside him. Uh, he he just he had this phenomenal capacity just to grind it out and do just um, tons of volume and stay positive when he was doing it. And mm -hmm. and he was super efficient too. He didn't he didn't even need to eat all that much while he was doing it. And it was it was just a he was a really neat guy to hang out with. So yeah, we did the uh, so we started these epic camps. And actually, the first one ever just started from my garage in Christchurch, started and finished from my garage in Christchurch. And there was there was about eight of us, including Scott and me. And we rode around the we rode around the South Island for 12 days. And I think we probably did a half Ironman or something in the middle of it. And it was great. It, it was I, I it was a easy way for me to do to do a ton of work. And I always found that I did better in a group uh, with people watching me. And it gave me some really fun stuff to write about too, like all these crazy days that we would do. And mm -hmm. uh, it was just a, it was a fun way to, 
get a bunch of volume done. So what we did then is we started doing them different places. We did in Colorado, Australia. We went to Europe a couple of times. And we did length of New Zealand one time. Um, but at the beginning, we it, it was no idea of really doing it like a business. Uh, we, we when when it was Scott and me, we were losing money at every camp. But I, I didn't mind <laughs> didn't mind losing the money because I mean S Scott minded, so I, I like covered the losses. So I, I didn't mind losing the money because the training was so good for me, and so it was kind of like going on vacation. But ultimately. With the camps that I did for uh, Epic Camp and the camps that I did for Endurance Corner, my other coaching business, what I discovered was I'm not that great at, at running the camps. I'm better at doing the camp. So <laughs> I, we brought in partners to take over uh, both the camp businesses. So John Newsom took over Epic Camp, and it's still going. They still do camps. They're not. They're not insane. They're just big big fun camps. Now they're not insane like we were doing 20 years ago. And then Endurance Corner, Justin Dare, my coaching partner, took that over too. And then those camp businesses ran like businesses. So in other words, the camp director had a big financial incentive to make the thing work and operated as a director that whole week. So it wasn't yeah. interested in their training at all, just trying to just focused on delivering a really good camp experience. And that's something that for coaches listening that are thinking, hey, it might be nice to do camps, I would say you got to separate what the goal mm -hmm. is. is and, and you have to really make the camp about the camper if it's going to be a business, rather than the idea being, hey, I'm going to make money doing my training with other people. If that's your focus, it's going to be a struggle to make that work. It needs to be athlete focused rather than host focused. That's what we discovered over time. And they can be nice little um, small businesses in terms of making a decent, making a reasonable amount of money for a week uh, of work. And then what the camp directors used to do is they would put a week of their own training either before or after uh, the camp. So Justin would do an elite training week the week before the camp that he would host for us. And then during the camp week, it's a big week, but he's not worried about training. He knows he's done his training the week before. And that's mm -hmm. a nice way to, to handle it. When when you did the uh, the Epic Camps and you talked about 12 days of biking, I sense that was a point-to-point, -point, which I think is a fantastic way to get the training in. You know, rather than do the loop, you're always on different roads. Did you have support vehicles taking your stuff or were you essentially doing like a bike packing type of trip? So we we never did self-supported uh in those camps i did self-supported in my own uh training so i i had it was called a a bob trailer it's a one <laughs> there's a one wheel trailer and i would actually drag it behind my tt bike and i would do point to point <laughs> rides in the south island of new zealand with my stuff behind me on the tt bike it worked great so i would i would do those sort of wacky trips but we would use vehicles the other thing yeah. that the, it's it's nice to do a combination of point to point, as well as if you if you are doing something for say any 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 more than say five days, it's nice to actually have some double nights in one place mm -hmm. because having to unpack and pack every single morning kind of gets old if you're doing big training days. So what mm -hmm. we found was it would we would do little hubs, so we would do two or three nights in one place, and we would do some loop rides or we might have an event 
you know, we would do like a triathlon sometimes on a day where we didn't move. So swim, bike, run thing or duathlon, or we would have an easier day for people. So I guess the focus of those days was big volume through the bike, maybe a little swim before you set up in the morning, maybe a little run off the bike when you finished. So you were still getting some just a maintenance load for the swimming and the running, but it was all about gaining big fitness through the bike. Yeah, generally speaking for athletes, triathletes, a bike-focused overload is the safest overload to do um, because you can you can triple you can basically you can triple their their chronic volume in a in a camp period the chronic um, bike volume without mm. running a big risk of in, injury. The swims need to be done first. We found mainly because the athletes aren't necessarily used to high volume swimming and they prefer to get that done early. Um, and, and if you don't get it done early, you're too tired at the end of the day to have a decent swim. So what we would do is light breakfast swim, and then usually a a bigger meal and then head out on the bike. And then the idea would be some sort of transition run. Now it it also depends on the level of the athlete. So for anybody thinking of organizing this, the easiest way to do it first is just a a three-day, like a long weekend type block. Mm -hmm. And we found that a little bit of swimming and a little bit of running goes a long way. So even a 20-minute run can really help the legs in terms of benefiting from it. So the the short sessions work um, and stay balanced if you're a triathlete. So swim, swim, bike, and run. I'm I'm going to... I'm going to put you on the spot here. I remember from one of your ex-tribe blogs that there was a point, maybe coming towards the end of your career, when you tried a really high-volume swimming week. Um, and it yep. didn't – was that one where it didn't go particularly well? I think you might have been with Monica then, and I think because Monica was a, a super swimmer, wasn't she? And so I think Still we is. were both trying this high-volume swimming, and I, I seem to remember that it didn't end particularly well. Did you? Did one or both of you get ill with, with the volume you were trying to achieve? So – Monica was fine. She's always tolerated and still does tolerate pretty, pretty decent swim volume. So what was, so I was, so let's, let's, where are we? So this is going to be 2005, spring of 2005. And I was really tired uh, from my training. So, but I was trying to figure out another way to figure out another way to win in a sense. So I was like, well, my life situation and my fatigue means I'm not able to do a lot of swim, bike, run. I had something going on work-wise. So I wasn't able to do a whole bunch of volume. And so I was like, well, let's see if I can do a swim camp. And the swim camp actually went really well. But what I should have been doing was more like base training because my life stress was high and I didn't have the time. But I decided to see if I could elevate my swimming by doing a a huge block of swimming over a couple of weeks. And the swimming, my swimming went great. But what happened was I was overreached and my immune system, my capacity to Mm -hmm. recover gave out. And I ended up taking probably a probably a month or so off, like really light month uh, and then having to build back up again from there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's. That is actually that period is one of the key mistakes I made as an elite athlete. And it's something that I think every athlete sh- should remember is when you take yourself to a completely new level of performance, 
it can be very tempting to hold on to that level of performance. And what I mean is you will do the specific training required to get this amazing race result for yourself. After that amazing race result, so it would be, it's like, I call it the post-Olympic year for those of us mm -hmm. that never went to the Olympics, but you're, you've had this result that's amazing for you, whatever that is. You need to come back to the type of training that enabled you to do the specific training. Mm -hmm. You need to come back to base, reset yourself, and then come back up to the training. Not to be tempted to maintain the specific preparation, mm -hmm. those really challenging race-specific sessions, because ultimately you'll break down. I broke down and my training partner, Klaus Bjorling, he broke down too because we didn't reset the base. And there's a book out there called How to Skate a 10K. Oh, yes. By Niels yes. Vanderpool. And mm -hmm. Niels talks about these base periods, both resetting the base, but also if you have a long competitive season, to give yourself the opportunity to reset in the middle of that competitive season. And it, it's really, it's a, a health thing, a hormonal thing, and a, and a mental thing, so that you're not constantly pushing all the time. And it's a great way to, you know, plan multiple years. I think Paula Newby Fraser phrased it as a get out of shape period. She says you've got to become an ex-athlete for a while after a great performance. And I know that Mark Allen was always a big fan after he'd won Hawaii of really not doing a great deal between sort of October and Christmas. I know he used to ride his cruiser bike. He'd go surfing most days. He'd probably go running and messing around on the beach with his kids. But he didn't really start any serious training for next year's races until after January. And I, I think, you know, I've chatted with Dave Scott about this, about the approaches that him and Mark had back in their heyday. And Dave says, yeah, I think that's why Mark's doing so much better than the rest of us health-wise now, because everything was so much more balanced in his life. And we always used to think he was a nut when he used to go off with the um, with Brent and do all his shame and stuff and his um, things out in the, on the camp out in the hills, but you know, he seemed to have much more of a mindful balance on his life then than some of the other triathletes who were just, you know, 110% all the time. And that's and that is the Nordic athletes. Mm -hmm. And I think if you embrace your climate and you do have a climate where you're forced to dial down the volume for part of the year. So I trained with a lot of Swedish athletes and their weather forced this on them. And I think it extended their careers, just like you're saying there, because in the winter, they just, you know, reality was they didn't fight it. You know, they, they dropped the volume down and they stayed active, but they just went through it. And then they were super motivated when the spring came to get out and get rolling again and ramp the training up. I think that's a really healthy approach, particularly mm -hmm. for amateur athletes. Now, one of the things, you know, saying that, one of the things that enabled me to ramp up quickly was I was doing two years for every one calendar year because I was changing mm -hmm. hemispheres. And I and because I was base focused in my training, I was able to do 10 out of 12 months at a very high level and it ramped me up very quickly. So I think... I think it really depends on the athlete as well as their goals. 
I think it's not worth if you're in a if you're in a climate, uh, it's not worth fighting through the winter. I think that's counterproductive because you're tapping out your mental reserves. And then when mm-hmm. spring comes, you're feeling a bit flat. But I do think if you're an athlete, and particularly some of the older veteran athletes have the time and flexibility to put in a warm weather training camp, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the winter and in the early spring, I think that can really ramp you know, get you up, uh, bike focused, endurance focused, that can, that can lift you up with your approach. So I don't think it's really I, one size fit all in that sense. I think what I like with, cause I've got a few guys that I coach in uh, Sweden as well. And what I liked about their approach in the winter is that, um, because cycling outdoors was challenging sometimes, a lot of them used to do the Nordic skiing, which is low impact, really good volume but they used to do stuff similar to what you talked about at the epic camp where they go to where they go just easy touring for two or three days between the huts so you get a nice low intensity block of training it's really good endurance there's no impact you're doing you're using the body in a slightly different way you know i i really think that that sort of thing pays dividends for your overall um long-term health um yeah. you one one of the things I've heard you talk about, Gordo, and this is particularly pertinent for age group athletes who are working, is um, the stacking benefits of multiple training camps. Now we're not talking about big sort of seven day training camps. We're talking about maybe like we we it's a bank holiday in the in the UK as we're talking first of May, so three days. We've got the King's coronation coming up, so there's another three days. Then we, we we're overloaded with holidays in May because. Um, in the UK because we've got another three days coming up at the end of the May so there's three three day opportunities for folks there if they were planned um, to stack their training so I know you've talked about that just give everybody your theory on how that can be really useful if you're if you're time crunched and then I've got I've got something I want to a question I want to pose to you about that as well if you don't mind when you're finished yeah so so one of the things I've found is that we all of us tend to think in terms of workouts but rather than thinking in terms of workouts i think it's more useful to think in terms of blocks of load or blocks of volume and if you think about a long weekend the long weekend itself is a form of workout so these short training camps are workouts and you need to learn when you first do them you're probably going to do them too fast and it's probably not going to be balanced swim, bike, run training. But if you if you think through intellectually, uh, if somebody was getting ready for an Ironman race, where am I trying to get myself to? Well, if you can get yourself to the point where you can comfortably do a broken Ironman every long weekend you get from spring to fall, you're going to really be able to improve your ability to race Ironman races. Or flip side, you're a 70.3 athlete. Well build the fitness up so that over a three-day period, you could do the equivalent of two 70.3 races. Same kind of thing, a little bit different. And I'm not talking about pace. I'm just talking about the ability to do those distances, do that amount of work. Because as a working athlete, one of the things that you're not going to be able to experience in your day-to-day, because your, your workouts are going to be limited is the what happens to your body and what happens to your physiology if you actually have three bigger days and you do them in a row. And it's a different type of stimulus that you'll be giving yourself than having, say, one big day a week. 
combining them is a is a I find is a more powerful stimulus, particularly for your cycling and your general conditioning. And as you stack these types of workouts, you're going to learn how to do them and how how to approach them and how to pace them. And over time, it'll make your race much smaller. And uh, it'll be smaller mentally, and it'll be smaller for your body. Your body's going to be used to doing that kind of duration. So it shrinks the race. And one of the things we would hear the epic campers say is when they got to their next Ironman after they had done these big camps with us, is, you know, it got hard, but then I realized it was only one day. I didn't have to back this up for another two or another five days. And it really helped them push through those difficult bits in their racing. And so what we had managed to do is rewire their brains with how they deal with fatigue. We had taken one of the emotional issues of fatigue away. It's like, this is just a day. I know I can do this. I'm not going to fall apart. Nothing's going to go wrong. And that touches on a bit on uh, some of the people like the central governor theory of fatigue, where your brain's going to shut you down and stuff. Because you've done these multiple days, you're going to be able to get more out of yourself before you, you know, your brain tries to turn switch or switch you off and slow you down to protect you. So you talked about the value of getting away for a warm weather camp, you know, for working athletes. Um, most of those folks that are time crunched have probably got quite stressful lives. You know, they've got families, they've got work, they've got all the pressures of the environment that are around them. So they go off to, in Europe, it's it's common in, in, the, in the winter to go to Lanzarote or where we are at the moment to go to Mallorca and do a week of training. And of course, because now you're no longer working and perhaps you're away from your family and you've got none of those pressures, you've got a free day to ramp up the training volume, right? Now, I've been a lot of camps as a coach and an athlete, and what I've seen is people doing those, you know, it's almost like being faced with a smorgasbord of Michelin star food. You just gorge on it and then feel sick at the end of it. And I've seen people come back feeling really fit, and then a few days later they've got ill. Um, I wonder sometimes whether a better approach for those people is if, if they're doing, let's say, 15 hours a week back in their home environment, to go to the warm weather camp and do the 15 hours and instead of maxing out on the training, max out on the recovery, take an extra half hour in bed, do some meditation, spend time doing a bit more mobility and some time in the gym, just just kick back and relax a bit, read. You know, Is that an alternative? Does that provide the overload or give them the opportunity to get that adaptation you talk about? Or is there a need to really um, pick up the volume as well, do you think? Or could they both work in different circumstances? So, so a couple of things that that will work. I think people, particularly if you want to learn how much baseline stress you're carrying around in your life, is just go somewhere different from your existing life and do your normal week, and you'll mm-hmm. be like, "Wow, I'm just recovering so fast." I think the other thing that works though is shorten your camp. So don't go big for seven days. So have a have an easy day when you arrive, have an aerobic maintenance day, and then do a couple big days, another easy day, and, and put yourself in a position so you don't go home tired. So if you do, let's say you do have a week. So don't smash yourself every day. S- settle in, back-to-back big days, easy day, back-to-back e- big days, and then an easy day, go home, that, that kind of thing. So you think more tactically about it, or... Most of the working athletes that I coached, that they would just do these long weekends. 
So it's like, I'm not going to go big long enough to put myself in a big hole. I'm just, I'm going to go, I'm going to go big for two or three days away from home with no responsibilities. I can just focus on my training. Then I can go back to my life, but I'm not going to be so tired that I have to do this big recovery. So that's another way to approach it. Shorten it up or break up the big days. If you do have a week, break it up. That's something that we could have done much better with. And that's actually, so the people that were involved in those camps, that's how those camps have changed over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's still the overload, but there's some down days built in. So you're not going big day after day after day. Now, how do you know, how do you assess your camp? This is something that I find works really well. You assess how the camp goes based on how the week after the camp goes. Mm -hmm. And I do this with my own training now is if I get tired in a week unexpectedly, I look back to the prior week and maybe even two weeks. I'm like, well, what did I do? Because I'm not tolerating it this week. I did too much. And so I look at, and then I developed some guidelines for myself. It's like, okay, that was too much. And I use training peaks and they have this concept of TSB, training stress balance, mm -hmm. and it'll mm -hmm. go negative when you're doing a big week. And so I, I have a, I set a floor and I know if I'm going below that, I'm going to give myself problems next week. And as an older athlete, 54 now, uh, I just can't take myself as deep as when I was in my thirties and my early forties. So I have to watch that much more carefully. Um, and particularly I need to watch it when things are going well, because I can talk myself into kind of overdoing it in like the heat of the moment. So you talked about that. You're on a groove at the training camp. You're feeling good. You're up. And then you go home, you rest a bit and you get sick. And if that's the pattern, you have to, now it's actually helpful, make the mistake once and learn from it, that you now know what it takes to make you sick and you don't want to go back there because it's the compound work that makes you fitter. It's not these heroic days or these big mm. weeks, you got to be able to back it up week in, week out, month to sort of get these compound gains across the year. Then you come down in your transition period, and then you build back up the following year, ideally to a higher level. And you're stacking these years on top of each other. You mentioned when you stepped away from the sport um, because of your children. Before that, I, I, you had you had some great results when you were racing as a pro. I remember that race in Canada when the course was upset by the fires and you had to do four laps. I remember watching the tracker there and you were getting faster and faster. I don't, was it Tom Evans that just beat you there? You had the fastest run of the day, didn't you? But you just couldn't quite catch Tom Evans. But that, that seemed yeah. like a great day for you. And then you came second to Cameron Brown. Um, but I also know you had, a, you had a great victory at Ultraman in Hawaii. And you also won with class. You won Otelo in Sweden. So, yeah, so that, of, that was, of, of of those races, which which are the ones that gave you most satisfaction? Well, the best, the, the most fun day is actually it was Colting in in uh, at Otilo. Oh, okay. Sorry, the swim sorry. run that was that was just an amazing event. Mm -hmm. So it's a mm -hmm. swim run event where you run across the islands and swim the channels outside of Stockholm, and you go down this chain of islands, mm -hmm. and it was just an amazing. I'm I'm going back this year with Colting because um, it was just an amazing event. We're just just trying to. I think he called us Team Old and Slow now, so we're just trying to finish. <laughs> but it was yeah. it, it was an amazing day. So that 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 was really neat. Uh, that event in terms of a single day, that's probably the coolest thing I've ever done. 
is because I had no idea about the course. I was mm-hmm. with a friend. Holting is a phenomenal athlete. He's and he was he was uh, he's turning fifty this year, and this was so he was in his late thirties. He was in fabulous shape. It was all I could do to stay on his feet in the water. So I was swimming as hard as I could just to stay on his feet, and he he led all the swims. I think I was in front for maybe four hundred meters of one swim, and then he came around me. He's like, "We got to keep moving." Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a fun one. The Ironman races were 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 fun in the sense that I was able to deliver my fitness at a very high level on the day, but Ironmans themselves aren't particularly fun when you're doing mm-hmm. them. You know, putting tra- running a really fast marathon when you're tired is very demanding. I it used to take me a month to kind of recover from that mm-hmm. type of effort mm-hmm. for myself. I was I would have so normally my Ironman New Zealand peak would not be a big peak for me. It would be like a base training type race. And then my Ironman Canada peak was my true peak. So it would be my highest level of fitness for the year in August. And after that, I, I'd be done for a month. Um, and and the years where I accepted that and took a month of essentially off, the year after went a lot better. The one year I didn't where I tried to hold on was you mentioned with that swim camp and stuff. I tried to hold my fitness through that winter. It was just a mess mm-hmm. for me. I ended up having to rest a lot more. So those events, those events were neat. Ultraman was a three-day race on the big island of Hawaii. That the fun thing about that was that was the first big thing I actually won. And it changed my self-image. I still wasn't that fast as an elite. But because of my tolerance for volume, that event really suited me. So if I could if I could just sleep at night, I could train day after day after day at a pretty good pace. So I was well well suited to uh, Ultraman in that sense. That we used to call it uh, stage training, and that was part of the idea that we had for Epic Camp. Mm-hmm. Scott and I loved doing it. We both tolerated it really well, and we would do you know these. It would be mixed in. We do some events and some time trials and stuff mixed in with these big training days. So they they were good. But you know, some of the best times were not the races. It was you know you talk about those point to point rides, mm-hmm. and it's just it was the ability to be outside and just see see the world and ride mountain ranges and run on all these tracks and stuff and swim across. You know, I swam. There's a harbor in. Christchurch that's called Akaroa Harbor. It's 5K. And I did it. My first ever 10K swim was an out and back event uh, in mm-hmm. that harbor. And that was a really neat day that I did with friends. It's all those types of shared experiences uh, that stay uh, with us. And something I'm really glad I did was across that entire period, I kept a journal and I wrote and took pictures and then I saved everything. And it mm-hmm. becomes this library of experiences that can help other people. And working through that library, I can kind of relearn things in terms of, well, this worked, that didn't work, and uh, try and pass that on to folks. I was reading an interview with Killian Jone recently, and he said, I race so that I can train better. And I get a sense almost that um, the training is the thing that keeps you going, not necessarily the racing. The racing is almost something to aim for, but the training is what you really enjoy the process and you know just those experiences that you've had with all those different people over the years in different places 
And that's so that's something that I tell elites when they're at the transition point of their career. So I say, I say two things to them. I say, write down why you need to make a change right now. Um, write down what's not working about your life and why you think you need to make a change. Because you're going to forget and you're going to be tempted to come back and race again. So, so you'll forget at these key transition periods of our life. And it's not just for elite athletes. You, you might be in a career that's not working for you and or, or a relationship that uh, you think is not right for you. Write down why you need to make a change. You're going to forget with time. And the other thing is to remember that when you're on the path and you're on a path that's working for you, um, it's the day-to-day that's working for you. It's not necessarily the event. So I think a lot of athletes put tremendous pressure on themselves and on their life with all these events. So when I took the break from racing, I didn't take a break from being healthy. So I had 10 years where I didn't race. And in those 10 years, I was focused on my family and but I but I didn't let go of my health. I was lifting weights, I was active, I was doing stuff outside. But I did, but I felt that the race itself was creating stress within my family life and my larger life. So I was like, you know, I don't need that. I just get rid of that. And you can you can still be healthy and have a really rewarding life without these events putting stress on you. Wow. And, and and related to that is some athletes will actually hurt themselves and compromise their health simply mm-hmm. for an event that that they put in their calendar by choice. And you got to be willing to let go of things when they're not working for you, not working for your body and not working for your life mm-hmm. because the this is a long journey we're all on. I mean ideally John Hellemans is a great example. He's he's in the 70 to 74 now. He says he's not competing, but he's still participating. He's still in the game. Mm. And, you know, for me, that's a big win. You know, I look at I look at an athlete like that and I'm like, wow, they're they're still out there. They're still engaged and, and they're getting a benefit from the overall process. So the benefit's not coming from the event per se. It's coming from the lifestyle um, that we're all living. Well. And the Simon Butterworth of this world as well. Coming yeah. up to 80 now and working out how he can have those knees sorted out so he can uh, go back and win his world title in Kona at 80 plus. Which I, honestly, you know, I I know um, some elite athletes and they inspire me, but I aspire to be like the Simon Butterworth and the John Hellemans of this world because that is within my that is within my powers to live my life like that and still be doing those things that I love and you doing those things you love in 20 years time. Or ten ten years time for me. Yeah. So you you um you kept your, you kept your routine. Now you're coming back now, and one of the things that um I was uh, really interested in is this idea that ties in with longevity and really tries to overcome this. I must have everything now type of approach that athletes have. You know, I want to get, I want to improve my ten k by four minutes in three months' time. It's the thousand day plan. So where did that come from? Because I I love that idea. I really do. I've got to think of a way of pitching that without uh, treading on your toes. Well, I I took it off of Molina. So he, (laughs) so we're riding, we're we're riding up to uh, Sign of the Kiwi in uh, Christchurch, which is one of the, one of the climbs, one of the local climbs in the Port Hills. And he just leans over to me and he's like, how long are you going to give it? 
And uh, I'm like, well, give what? And it's like, you know, this whole elite athlete thing. I was like, I don't know. I'm just having fun. He said, well, let me tell you something. I think you need to give it a minimum of three years before you make a decision anyway. In other words, before you think you're, before you're done or before you're, you know, whatever. Just, just do the training for three years without any expectation. Just do the work. And that stuck with me. Now, within those three years, I won Ultraman. I won Ultraman two years into the three years. Now, winning Ultraman, just the ability to finish Ultraman was something that I considered impossible um, when I started. The first time I ever went to Hawaii, there was a little flyer stuck up on a pole that mm -hmm. said about the Ultraman race. And I was like, how could anybody do that? Just too big, too crazy. <laughs> and why would anybody want to do that? Anyhow, a few years later, I go out and I win the thing. So it completely changed my mind in terms of what is possible. And that happened in two years. And there's been a lot of examples of that in my life. If I can just do the work for a thousand days, three years, I'm going to end up somewhere that was totally impossible in terms of what I thought could be done. And it, it, it appears all the time. So it might be different things, building a podcast, building a social media following, uh, writing a book, uh, all these different, all these different things in terms of what we can achieve over these longer time horizons. And so I found it's a really powerful thing. And I, I'll give you an illustration of just how powerful time is. So the first race I ever did when I, after, so I'm I'm in my 20s and I do a 10K race, 10K running race in Hong Kong. And I went 50 minutes for the 10K and I averaged 10 beats below my maximum heart rate. So it was at the time, it was sort of a mid 160s effort for me. Now, last week I did a benchmarking session and I ran 10K uh, and my average heart rate was 117 beats a minute for that 10K, which is 50 beats per minute below my current max. Now, that kind of improvement is something that you wouldn't be able to find in a textbook because they study short duration tests. Mm -hmm. And what, if somebody's out there listening, you can completely change your physiology. So the heart that did the run last week is not the same heart that, that did the 10K race in my 20s, the muscles, everything. It's completely different. And these long time horizons, if you can stick with things for these long periods, you have the ability to not just completely change your physiology, but you can change your entire life if you just stick with it. And it, and and scientists and, and, and all this will tell you, well, that's impossible. You can only improve your VO2 max by 10%. But, but that's because their time horizon isn't long enough. And so the, th the idea is with this thousand days is it's about the longest, I think, as humans, we can kind of picture ourselves doing <laughs> something. And, but the reality is, if you're onto something that you like, you're going to be doing it way more than a thousand days. I mean, here I am 25 mm. years later and I'm still doing it and I'm still trying to figure out how to improve. And it's a really fun game to play, whatever, whatever your field is. 
And so that's what it's all about. It's about long-term improvement because we will hold ourselves back because it's impossible to see this compound future. And so sometimes we won't even try or we'll quit too early. So the idea is to focus on these longer time horizons. And when I was a coach, I would work with athletes and I would say, hey, you, you got to give me a minimum of 500 days. And what I found was 500 days work great for me, but I was a really high responder to training. And I found that this thousand day mindset works better. And it's really, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to commit to, to whatever I think I need to do. I'm going to commit to doing what it takes for a thousand days. And it also helps athletes avoid pushing too hard on the day to day, because in my mind, what I need to do Mm -hmm. is I need to be heading out at a pace that I can know I can sustain for a thousand days. So that's part of like with the rest and and with paying attention to not getting too tired week to week, I know I got to string 150 weeks together. So if I'm heading, if I'm getting excited. So in February, I had a few big weeks. I was all fired up and the gains were coming. I started to go stale and I realized, look, there's no way I'm going to be able to sustain this rate of increase through the summer. I got to just back off and regroup and then kind of, and then start this process again. And so it helps me think better and make better decisions in my own life. So uh, listening to what you've said today, Gordo, we've got the three children, Gordo, professional athlete, you know, young, ambitious, full of energy. And now we've got the 54-year-old father of three? Three. 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 Father of three, right? Coming back to the sport. So we've got Gordo, 2.0. 2.0. So what I'm going to ask about your thoughts on training for 50 uh, men of 50 plus. And I, but for the next bit, I want I want to know what you do more or less of in Gordo 2.0. But I'd also like you to deliver these to me in your blog format. You know, bullet points, short, sharp, to the point, so folk, so folks can concentrate on them. So hit me with them, sir, because I'm going to be writing these down and using them myself. Well. It's the same program, only less. So I think that's a key um, point. So the it's a balanced program, but it's scaled down. And one of the mistakes I made in my 40s was I scaled, I got, for, there was a period of time where I scaled down my easy training and tried to keep my tempo training. Mm-hmm. And so my program ended up my average relative intensity was going up when my volume was going down. And I didn't see what that was doing to me because I was coming from a very high level of fitness. And if you stay active, you you, you hold that. But the reality was I was selling myself short metabolically. And so I had I had these feelings that I was getting old, but what was happening was I was getting metabolically unfit. So my easy training, I brought that back primarily on the bike. And that has had a very positive impact, not just on my athletic performance, but my whole life, my energy levels and how I feel. So if somebody's listening and they're wondering, hey, I feel like I'm getting old. Well, have a look at your program and see (laughs) if maybe you're just metabolically unfit. And the easiest place to address that is on the bike, because that's the only place you're going to be able to go easy enough to train these metabolic 
pathways, the mitochondria. So, so, so scale it down. Now, as a young elite, when I made that move from 18 hours a week to 30 plus hours a week, something I did very well was maintain my strength and mobility. So mm -hmm. uh, there was a local yoga studio run by a friend of mine called Mark Bookums and Mark in Sumner. And Mark, I would go to uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the evening, I would go do an hour and a half of yoga with Mark. And it wasn't just stretching. It was learning how to move my body through a wider range of motion. And it was improving my ability to move and my movement economy and my balance. So it improved my time trial position. It also improved my running economy because I was really stiff. And um, mm -hmm. and when I was running, I was, I was I used to kind of, they called it lumbering. I would kind of like lumber along and stuff. Mm -hmm. and I wasn't fluid. And so it, it that is something that I've brought back because I'm looking to scale up my running and I want to improve and, and my time trial position because I haven't ridden on a TT bike in 10 years, my, my back's pretty tight. And so I want to mm -hmm. get into a better position because my power is way less. So I want to have a better, I want to optimize my position. So a range of motion. So it's something I did, what are we talking, you know, 20 years ago, actually might even, it's more than 20 now. And I'm bringing that back. So that would be, that would be another, another thing um for the for the over 50 athlete would be range of motion so I, i'm not talking about stretching i'm talking about strength and power and joint angles so it's different you're not just you you, you, you want to be able to use your strength through a wide range of joint angles this is something dave scott taught me as well too because you you need to train mm -hmm. all your positions on the bike not just one position so you have many different ways and what this does is this gives you the ability to activate different muscles. You can delay fatigue by changing the your cadences, changing your positions. And for long distance racing, it's 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 incredibly useful. Mm. So those would be, I, I would say, the 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 main uh themes. And then as well, as an older athlete, you're gonna have to be smarter. You're gonna, you're you're not you're not gonna be able to get away with as many loading mistakes. So I am. I mean, I'm gun shy with my running because I know that if I can just keep running, I'm going to get better. I've I've proven it to myself in the past. So the red zone running, the hard running, running through fatigue and running if I've got a niggle, I just don't do any of that. So if I feel something go on a run, I shut the whole run down right away. And so I never get to the point where I'm injured and I'm able to train through my niggles by just doing some easy work on the treadmill for a few days. And sometimes it, it's a, it's a few weeks in October, I was doing really easy short runs on the treadmill, just doing my minimum frequency, my minimum volume for a month, just while I was working through some niggles, but I stayed in the game. Uh, and I think as a young athlete or as a really highly motivated athlete, sometimes we can try and push through that and, as a master's athlete, you don't want to do that with your running because if you lose the ability to run, you lose a lot um, in terms of your ability to well train as a triathlete. But the running stimulus is a very different stimulus than the cycling mm -hmm. stimulus or the swim stimulus. I, I find it's it's the easiest way for me to train myself centrally 
And it's a great form of exercise. And I really want to keep that in my program. So I'm very cautious with it. I think I've seen you wearing an aura ring there on your left hand. Yeah. Do you pay pay a great deal of attention to the data on there? Or is that just, just something that you use for a bit of accountability from time to time? So, yeah, well, let's talk about that. So it's on the on the HRV, there's a lot of variability in my HRV. And mm-hmm. there's variability day to day, but there's even variability within a 10-minute window. So I'll do multiple readings and I'll get three different readings across a 10-minute window. And then in the evening, I do a five to 10-minute sample and I'll see my HRV move across that sample, uh, averaging across the thing. Now, so I use the HRV because when it's depressed, when it when it's when it's suppressed below my normal range, that's a clear signal that I'm mm-hmm. too tired. But these little day-to-day movements, I I trust my feeling and my resting heart rate or so the HRV is useful to trend. Now, something else that comes with the aura ring is body temperature. So when my body temperature is out of whack, when I download the data in the morning, it it throws a little flag up. And I've discovered that my body temperature will move before I feel sick. So it'll pop. And so if my body temperature pops, my resting heart rate does something funny and I feel slightly off and my HRV is suppressed, I, I just shut down my training immediately. And sometimes, sometimes you might still get a little bit sick, but I've found that I lose fewer days to illness. So that's that's the value that I that I that I get out of the ring. But you can capture most of this information just by taking your resting heart rate in the morning and in the evening. It, it captures uh, most of that. And if you're looking at your trends and looking at how you feel, I find that. The other thing is, I think uh, uh, athletes that have more experience than me with HRV and they've been using it. One of my friends has been using it for more than ten years. Mm-hmm. He says he's always it's got to be a three day trend for him to pay attention to it. So the mm-hmm. the one day is too volatile, but if he's but if something's going on and it's a three day sort of negative trend, he's not going to push through that. Likewise, if there is an acute movement, a one or two day trend, and all of a sudden his feeling <clears throat> goes off, he it'll give him the confidence to shut things down. So he's not going to push through the fatigue. So it's another. Uh, warning flag, say, and that's how uh, he uses it. Are you, are you are you using it to track sleep at all then, or is it just purely for HRV for you and, and sort yeah. of um, body temperature? Let, yeah, let's talk about sleep. So the sleep metrics, uh, I mean, it's kind of useful in terms of it can track when mm. you lie down and when you get up. But in terms of the actual sleep staging and things like that, I haven't found the data all that useful. No. So for sleep, I think the best metric for sleep is can you wake up without an alarm at the same time every day? So how do you know that you're getting enough sleep? You're able to wake up without an alarm. Forget all the other stuff, the watches, the rings. That Mm. is probably one of the most powerful things that an athlete can do for themselves is I'm going to go to sleep around the same time. I'm not going to worry about how many hours I'm actually asleep or how much my REM is. What I want to do is I want to be able to wake up without an alarm at about the same time every single day. When I can do that, I know I'm on track. So that's, I I think, the key metric. Yeah, I've been using the WHOOP, which is 
gives you similar data, but it's a wristband rather than a ring. And I found the same, the, the data for, for the sleep, the REM, all of that sort of stuff can be a bit spurious. Keeps telling me, even even when I'm getting more sleep now, it keeps telling me I'm not getting enough. And, you know, there's this thing called orthosomnia where you start worrying about not getting a good night's sleep and then you worry about it so much you don't get a good night's sleep and that's not a good thing. Um, so I've done the same as you. I've, I've used it a bit like the same with the constant glucose monitor. I've used it for a short period of time. I've understood what it's telling me about my body. I know now that the things that mean that I get a worse night's sleep, like if I have alcohol too close to bedtime, if I drink caffeine in the afternoon, um, if I eat too late. Um, and I also know the things that help me get a better night's sleep, like getting up in the morning and getting some daylight in my eyes as early as possible, meditating and reading and sort of, you know, um, cutting out the blue light early in the evening and then keeping my bedtime and waking time consistent. And if I hit those metrics, which are all subjective, I know that I'm going to go through the next day feeling fresh and on top of my executive function and my decision-making, which, uh, you know, per your point, is that subjective feeling can probably be just as important. And that goes back to what John Hellemans was saying about, you know, the subjectivity of how you're training rather than what the data is telling you. Yeah, yeah. I think with all these metrics, it's pretty easy to mm. overthink it. I like to try and keep it keep it simple. The idea being to make fewer mistakes. So I think that's that's the way I tend to use it, trying to eliminate mm. mistakes rather than this quest for constant optimization. It's just like, all right, was there a signal I missed where you know I might have mm. avoided this illness or or not ended up injured or whatever it is? If, if you can make fewer mistakes, I think the stuff's useful. Beyond that, uh, you know, the readiness scores I, I I've found to be not helpful in in a sense that they don't really tell me a whole lot. But normal ranges are useful too. So understanding what my normal heart rate ranges are, both resting and training, I think is an important thing. And that's something that goes way back. John and Scott were teaching me that stuff twenty plus years ago. Is understanding what my normal heart rate profile is uh, when I'm exercising. One of the differences now is I think in the 20 years ago, we'd notice our heart rate was suppressed, but we'd have a workout in our calendar and we just do the workout anyhow, <laughs> send a note, send a a note to our coach and say, hey, you know, it was a seven hour training day and my heart rate was down 20 beats per minute the whole day. But I, you know, I got it done. Um, I think now I've learned that if I'm suppressed in the warm up. It should mm -hmm. just be a shorter, easier day, and I should bump that key session. And if if I if I'm if I'm on that, I'll get the key session in the next day, or at most two days later, and it'll go well. Mm -hmm. And by tracking the adaptation, I build confidence in my ability to reschedule things to when I'm better able to absorb the training. I think that's. And, you know, as an amateur athlete, as an older athlete, I think we need to remember we're not trying to win gold medals here. We just need to be reasonably accurate over a long period of time, and we're going to get what we need out of our training. Yeah, and I think that comes back to what you said about blocks of training. You know, it's, it's, it's a 10-day block. If you can get the stuff done in there, but you have to shift it around, that's fine. Get the blocks of training done and then the blocks of adaptation. And but. See if you look at it over the thousand days, how far am I going to go? There's no pressure on doing it today, is there? Because you, you can always push it back tomorrow within the thousand days. It still means you've got 980 left to do the workouts. Oh, yeah. Gordo, 
it, it's been fascinating. Uh, we've been on for an hour and 45. I've, uh, the time's flown by. Thank you so much for sharing that wisdom. I uh, I, wouldn't, I don't want to impinge on your day anymore, but I feel like we could have probably chatted for another couple of hours. Um, maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. But it's been an absolute pleasure to finally catch up with you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we'll point people towards your... It's not called Thousand Day Plan, is it? Is it Thousand Day Pacing? Thousand, thousand Day Pacing. One yeah. thousand. Okay. Yeah, the number. So that's where it's at. Okay. And you'll well, find me at Twitter and on YouTube too. I've been pushing some content out that I think helps people. Well, we'll put all those in the show notes so people can come and find you and help you help you spend a thousand days building your social media profile as well. <laughs> that's going well too. Gordo Byrne, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks again to Gordo for joining me as a guest on the High Performance Human Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed his insights and you'll find lots of links to stuff we chatted about in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any of my episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click on the subscribe button. And if you've got time while you're in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review because they are really useful in helping to rank the podcast a bit more highly. You'll find a link for that in the show notes below. So if you remember back to the introduction, I said I'd mentioned the benefits of our membership program. So if you're interested in diving deeper into any of the topics we discuss, we've created a membership program which allows me to provide more exclusive content and programs so we don't need to have any of those pesky paid ads on the show. And it's my goal to ensure that all of our SWAT members get back much more than the price of the subscription. So you find things that the membership includes like access to a growing library of training plans across a whole range of ultra-distance triathlon events, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo cycle events, you name it, we've got it. And if we haven't, we can create it for you. We've also got programs on mobility and strength, as well as programs to boost specific aspects of your bike fitness or swim fitness in the pool. We have monthly workshops for our SWAT members and you get free access to educational workshops on things such as nutrition, sleep, strength, etc, etc. We've also got a growing range of discounts on partner products and these are products that I've used myself where I know personally the people who run the companies and I don't have any financial skin in the game. So if you'd like to learn more and access the member-only benefits, please click on the link on my website, which is simonward.co.uk, but you can find all of that in the show notes below. All right, that's all for this week. As usual, I guarantee you another great guest next week, but for now, have a good one, and I'll see you on the next episode.